I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday, and I'm so pleased that you're able to join me. I'm also very pleased that Charles Hecker can join me in person to look through the day's front pages. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, contemplates an alternative career. Could I become a potter, I wondered? Would I be good at gaining a skill that requires such patience, dexterity and tactile sensitivity? I think we'd rather keep him as our editor-in-chief. Also ahead, Monocle's Andrew Muller on what we learned this week, and then an old railway connection in Europe has been resurrected. Monocle's Alexei Koryalov will tell us more a little bit later. All of that's coming up on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Iran's moderate presidential candidate Hassan Rouhani congratulated his rival Ibrahim Raisi for winning the election, Iranian state media reported today, as the Interior Ministry said counting of the votes continued. Millions of Iranians voted on Friday in a contest that's been expected to hand the presidency to Raisi, a hardline judge who's subject to US sanctions. A divided conference of U.S. Roman Catholic bishops announced on Friday that they voted to draft a statement on Holy Communion that may admonish Catholic politicians, including President Joe Biden, who support abortion rights. The United Nations General Assembly has called for a stop to the flow of arms to Myanmar and urged the military to respect the November election results and release political detainees, including leader Aung San Suu Kyi. And in our weekend edition email bulletin, inspiration strikes from a few unexpected places this week as we visit the spruced-up Toronto laneways reimagined as community hubs and discover a British modernist gem in a leafy London suburb. We learn what's threatening the platypuses of Boddington, Australia and leaf through the cookbooks of Marilyn Monroe. For your own copy, sign up at monocle.com forward slash minute. Well, it's time now to have a browse through this morning's newspapers. I am so happy that you're back, Charles Hecker. It is an absolute pleasure to be in the studio with you, Georgina. I've been looking forward to this moment, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you. But you didn't join in with our disco before the show. Um, you know, I'm not wearing the right shoes. It's really all the jumping up and down was really that was going to kill my feet. So uh, next time I'm going to dress appropriately. OK, well, apologies for being slightly out of breath, but it's raining men and September really take it out of you sometimes. <laughs> A little morning aerobics to get the blood flowing, right? Uh, let's start off with something very serious. Though, and this is what we've been talking about in our headlines. Uh, it's not unexpected, and this is the result of the Iranian election. That's right. So we're going to take our first story from the online edition of the New York Times, part of our hybrid life. We've got newspapers here in the studio. I've got ink on my fingers. It's a fantastic feeling. But we have breaking news coming out of Iran. And the headline on the online edition of the New York Times is, Iranian hardliner Ebrahim Raisi is headed to the presidency. And so... Even though the official results aren't in, we can take this one to the bank because everybody who is running against Raisi has already called to congratulate him. So the contest is over. What's important about this, the New York Times tells us, is that Raisi is ultra-conservative and a super hardliner. He's the head of the Iranian judiciary and a very close associate of Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Um, and is in fact, we're told by the paper that he may even be Khamenei's chosen successor. So the first thing that you have to think about here is, well, there are two things that you have to think about here. And this is, what is this guy as president going to do 
for the Iranian people who had previously elected a moderate who had promised um, a recovered economy and re-entering um, Iran into mainstream uh, geopolitical society with the signing of the JCPOA and all of that history. And now we're back with a hardliner. And in fact, the New York Times tells us that moderate voters and sort of liberal-leaning voters in Iran sat the election out and did not head to the polls as a sign of protest and a suggestion that the whole thing was rigged in the first place. So two conclusions to draw here. Um, the paper, the New York Times, tells us that domestically, Raisi will seek to fight corruption and to level out economic inequality. But I guess all eyes really globally are on what's going to happen with negotiations to re-enter the JCPOA, to revive the nuclear talks. And it's a mixed picture. Um, as a hardliner, Raisi is going to drive an extremely tough bargain with Washington. Um, but he and Khamenei present a united front so they can work together a little bit more efficiently than Khamenei did with Rouhani. So, you know, we'll see. But um, this is a developing story. It's just come online. And... Um, something to watch. And I wonder how those negotiations with Washington will work, because he is, in fact, Raisi is subject to U.S. sanctions personally. That's right. The U.S. has sanctioned him because he is known as an egregious violator of human rights. Um, and you will not be able to meet with him face to face. And most of these negotiations don't take place face to face. Anyway, they're always mediated by third parties and by other countries and by negotiators. Um, We'll have to see. I think the view, broadly speaking, is that there is a window of opportunity to reconstitute the JCPOA. This is something to look for probably in 2022 or 2023. Mm -hmm. So that's an election result that was absolutely fully expected. But here in the UK, we've had a result that was a real shock, particularly to the Tories. That's right. Listen to the rattling of real newspaper. <laughs> um, we go into page two. So fairly prominent in the FT, where the headline tells us Lib Dems set sights on blue wall after surprise poll win. And this is the story really of a colossal, I mean, a stonking victory by the Liberal Democrats in contesting a seat that was empty as a result of the death of the previous um, MP. But Sarah Green has triumphed uh, by an enormous margin over, and I've got his name right here. It's in the paper. Um, and I don't have it in front of me, so I, I can't no, no, help Peter you. Fleet. That is, <laughs> P forgive me, um, Peter Fleet. Oh, that's what happens when you get real newspapers. You actually have to read them. Um, <laughs> and so Sarah Green has trounced Peter Fleet. And what's interesting here is this is leafy, prosperous, rock-solid, middle-class Chesham and Amersham. And the voters of that district are upset with the Tories over HS2, the high-speed rail that's going straight through their district. And they're also concerned about conservative plans to build on the green belt. And so this leafy community has basically told the Tory party that they don't want anything to do with this. And, you know, cue national sort of gnashing of teeth and biting of nails about what this means um, for, the, for the Tories, for Boris Johnson, um, 
you know, on a much larger scale. Mm, because, of course, I mean, this, I mean, congratulations to Sarah Green and, and <clears throat> so on. But it, this was less about Green versus Fleet. This was about a national or at least a regional turning away uh, from the Tories uh, on, on these two particular issues. But I wonder if it signifies that, in fact, people have finally seen through and are taking action on all of these lies and the incompetence and the way that, uh, that this government, this Tory government has been dealing with the current situation. Um, that has to be a primary concern in the Conservative Party now, because whether it's, you know, the, if the proximal cause of this victory for the Lib Dems is HS2 and, and, and sort of construction and building policy, um, you have to think that the, that the size of the victory... Um, and the fact that this is considered one of the safest conservative seats in Parliament um, has to tell you that there is more at work here. And, you know, this is one of the first by-elections, if not the first by-election, uh, at the at sort of the tail end, if you will, of the pandemic and lockdown. And, and um, you know, the British economy is booming. Um, the conservatives are taking credit for vaccine triumph. And in spite of their triumphal mood, uh, the mood is not shared by voters in Chesham and Amersham. Mm. Uh, and there's been a lot of shocks surrounding uh, photographs of uh, Scotland fans celebrating in London last night. And I bring this up because, of course, this is Tory policy. You, you can't dance at weddings, but it seems that um, hundreds of drunk people in kilts are, <laughs> are allowed to gather. Um, and these rules are very, very odd. Uh, I mean, there, there seems to be absolutely no consistency here. Um, of course, uh, what I'm referring to is the UEFA 2020 uh, game that took place yesterday at Wembley Stadium. It was uh, England versus Scotland, age-old rivals. I mean, this this was the game to watch. I am absolutely not a fan, but even I watched it. <laughs> you know, it was. It, it <clears throat> felt like lockdown again in London last night because everybody was at home watching the game and the streets were absolutely dead empty. Um, but look, you know what? You're absolutely right to point out the contradiction in what's happening on the streets after the, and they were celebrating as if they had won a victory when it was really, really a zero-zero tie. Um, but that didn't stop anybody from coming out in the streets and the government messaging on lockdown, the government messaging on pandemic management, the government messaging on restrictions and what you can and can't do has been disastrous. Um, you had, in fact, um, on the other side of the political spectrum, you had Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, telling people not to come into town. Don't get a train ticket. Don't get a plane ticket. Don't fly from Scotland down to London. And they did in their droves. And it was pandemonium in Leicester Square last night. Mm, they put soap in the fountain, I'm told. <laughs> Um, my producer, Steph, is, is nodding vociferously there because she was happy to see it because she said it felt like London was celebrating and that we had got so kind of, it was so grim here. Uh, and it was pretty grim, the weather and all the rest of it. And it was lovely to see an explosion of, of celebration. But at the same time, for those people who are really suffering from this disease, it must have been extremely galling. So there, there are two contradictory trends at work here. And Steph's absolutely right. I mean, there is an enormous amount of pent-up demand, whether it's to go to the pub or to go shopping or to see family and friends or even to go back to work in the office or just to do something joyful and celebratory after these months of what was at one point the world's strictest lockdown or one of them. Um, this, these outbursts um, in public, I guess, are to be expected and are incredibly human, uh, but they've got to be balanced against exactly what you've just pointed out, and that is um, the ongoing um, suffering and the fact 
fact that the UK is on the verge of entering a third wave of infection. Charles, I'm so loving you here. Please stay with me till the end of the programme. With great pleasure. (laughs) Uh, So we'll come back to you and because we've got lots more to talk about. But right now, let's hear our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck's weekend column. Palmer, do you ever find yourself trying on other people's lives, wondering how it would look and feel to be them and have their take on the world? Maybe you never waver. Maybe you never have wandering thoughts like this. But during my final days in Palmer, I found myself doing this quite a lot. Did I want to be the Swedish man who clearly lives here all year round, whose PA arrives after walking his dog and who glistens with all the stamps of at-ease wealth? There's something about his manner, though, that makes me think I can do without this particular life swap. Would I instead prefer to be the person signing the contract for perhaps the best positioned and most carefully crafted triplex apartment in the city? Well, it would be a dream to live in a home by Olab Architects, my generous site guides, but seeing as I'm struggling to organise a tiny new home, actually, I will survive as I am. Then I went to the studio of the potter Papa Kone, who's become a friend over the years. Last time I'd been here was just before the pandemic hit and he had helped, really helped, me to make a cup and saucer. I said that I would be back in weeks, but some 19 months had intervened before I found myself climbing back into his atelier over the barrier that keeps his Labrador from straying. Yet there, sitting on the shelf, was my now fired and glazed effort. The whole atmosphere was one of purpose, of beautiful things being perfected slowly in the studio. Could I become a potter, I wondered? Would I be good at gaining a skill that requires such patience, dexterity and tactile sensitivity? The answer was clearly no, but it's fun to insert yourself into these pictures, if only to decide that you're lucky with things as they are and that the world is definitely a better place without you behind a potter's wheel. London. Two people speaking to each other and just getting along. Woman number one is explaining that she's just attended her company's diversity training and that the section on microaggressions was revealing. I hadn't understood that you shouldn't compliment a black person's haircut. Why, asked woman number two, is it because you risk exoticizing people? There's a bit of a debate, but woman number two sounds a note of caution. Honestly, I think you should just be true to what you think and pay the compliment. As you may have guessed, woman number two is many things, but one of them is that she is a very highly successful woman of colour. The attempts by businesses to shut down all manner of conversations at work in a bid to avoid any risk of complaints, let alone a lawsuit, have left many people unsure about what they can say even when all they're attempting to be is kind. And this can be counterproductive. Folk will think it's better to stick with those who look and behave like them rather than trigger any unforeseen anger while making new links. But because there's money to be made from this consultancy-driven rule-setting, it's unlikely to stop any time soon. And no, this is not an endorsement of racist language or of people not being challenged when they say something that you find uncomfortable. It's more a belief that when it comes to saying that somebody looks happy 
or perhaps great after their holiday, then most people will be delighted. Palmer. And you can only speculate what the consultants would have to say about this as an afternoon office treat. For the past few years, there's been a craze in Spain for waffles shaped, well, like penises. Please be careful if you decide to Google this for further information. You may see bits of Spain that take your breath away. It started in Madrid and Barcelona, but now Chic Parma is getting in on the act with several new outlets. They also make a female version. But rather than linger longer on this big growth sector, I will leave the last words to a local news website which says more than enough in just one sentence. The shop sells 17cm penis-shaped waffles in various flavours and colours, and the owners say that bigger ones will be available soon. And no, I did not imagine life as a franchisee. London. It has been announced that Oxford Circus, one of London's most famous spots, for no particularly pleasing reason, is to be turned into an Italian-style piazza. Don't start. There will be no gargoyles, no splashing fountains, no old folk lingering over coffee, no fresh veg stand. It's going to be pedestrianised. The Italians should trademark the piazza concept because the glories of their squares are too often mocked by the laying down of some paving stones over tarmac or the installation of some out-of-a-catalogue street furniture, with cities then claiming that the result is something akin to Rome's Campo dei Fiori. Now, this is the sort of offensive urbanist language that really could do with some consultant policing. It's quite shocking how people think they will get away with it. Many thanks to Andrew Tuck, Charles. Fancy a waffle? <laughs> do you eat them with a knife and fork? <laughs> you know what, what I what I am what I'm I'm questioning is that, so Andrew quoted this local news site saying the shop sells 17 centimeter penis shaped waffles in various flavors and colors. The owners say bigger ones will be available soon. Why would you, would you use the word available when the obvious pun is staring you in the face. Well, no, first of all, I'm, I'm sort of... Pro- look, look I've, I'm, you can tell by my accent that I'm from the United States. I've lived in the UK for 24 years and I'm still an inches guy. And so I'm trying to think to myself, 17 centimetres is how, you know, what, let, I'm, I'm trying to visualise. Um, you know, look, we're supersizing everything these days. So why not penis-shaped waffles? Well, one kind of sexual area where we're not supersizing, or in fact, perhaps the word is supersizing because it's normal sizing is Victoria's Secret because the angels are being dropped and normal women are uh, are instead going to be brand ambassadors. That's right. In the business section of the New York Times, no less, you've got a four-column story uh, about Victoria's Secret, which basically says that, that the time has passed for the sort of rail, thin, heavily made-up, idealized lingerie models that they normally use, and they're called the angels. It's time for them to sort of fly away and and, and return to the sort of non-existent heaven that perhaps they descended from. And what Victoria's Secret is going to do is going to replace them with some well-known celebrities, including football star, women's football star Megan Rapinoe, um, and a star... A, a, a inclusivity advocate called Paloma El Cesar, who has a lovely 
um, but generously proportioned body and has been used in lots of other advertisements. Anybody who's ridden the London Underground at any time in the past couple of years has seen the ads from another beauty brand of full-figured women in all shapes and sizes with all kinds of hairdos and styles and tall and short and what have you. And I guess Victoria's Secret is finally going to go there. They're a little bit behind the times on this because not only have other beauty brands um, done this, but other clothing brands are coming on the market and they're eating Victoria's Secret lunch because they're appealing to real women. Absolutely. But I mean, it does beg the question during lockdown, who was even wearing underwear? <laughs> well, you know, who was wearing underwear, who was wearing clean underwear, who who was wearing anything on top of their underwear. There were a lot of permutations and combinations in uh, lockdown wardrobing. I must say, though, actually, what I developed was an online underwear shopping habit, um, <laughs> it, you know, but uh, perhaps, we'll, perhaps we'll move swiftly on from that. What do you think? Oh, so, yes, why not? We're moving swiftly on. <laughs> to Andrew Muller, who's going to tell us what he learned this week. We learned this week that this life is but a futile trudge from cradle to grave, a weary and careworn schlep through a veil of tears, a meaningless plod in inexorable circles around the sinkhole, and so forth. And we learned this on the authority of Russian President Vladimir Putin, comparisons of whom to a ray of sunshine have been historically infrequent. Speaking at this week's summit with US President Joe Biden in Geneva, Putin gave us the following to go home and think about, as translated now by Monocle 24's baleful Russian fatalism desk chief Paige Reynolds. There is no happiness in life. There is only a mirage on the horizon. And happy Russia Day for last Saturday to you too, Mr. President. President Putin's interlocutor at Geneva also had much to teach us, it turned out. We learned from President Biden an interesting, even innovative interpretation of the course of American foreign policy, which positions the United States, it turns out, as comfortably ensconced on the moral high ground, vis-a-vis -vis interfering with the affairs of other nations. How would it be if the United States were viewed by the rest of the world as interfering with the elections directly of other countries and everybody knew it? What would it be like if we engaged in activities that he is engaged in? It diminishes the standing of a country that is desperately trying to make sure it maintains its standing as a major world power. You know that clip we have of awkward coughing, chairs being scraped on the floor of an empty room and empty bottles being cleared away? Now would be a good time. <coughs> <coughs> It has been quite the school week here in the UK as well, where we learned that Health Secretary Matt Hancock is not, contrary to widespread suspicion, hopeless. We learned this on no less an authority than Hancock himself, via one of those extremely useful and always informative journalistic encounters which involve someone yelling a belligerent question at a car and receiving a dismissive answer faintly audible over a revving engine. Are you hopeless, Mr Hancock? I don't think so. 
In fairness, I don't think so is quite an endearing answer. How certain are any of us, really? Yeah. Anyway. We had learned prior to this enlightening exchange that the issue of Hancock's hopelessness had been raised a while back in a WhatsApp message from Prime Minister Boris Johnson to his very much former aide Dominic Cummings, which appeared this week in one of the interminable blog posts with which Cummings is now passing his days before the next season of Strictly Come Dancing. We learned that Johnson had indeed described Hancock as hopeless and that he had emphasised this assessment with an adverb rhyming with clucking, ducking, trucking, bucking or clucking. But we did also learn that the UK's government had wrangled one unalloyed triumph. A free trade deal between the UK and Australia was jointly announced in London by Boris Johnson and Australian Prime Minister and only Australian presently allowed to leave the country, Scott Morrison, and we learned that the UK's negotiators had indeed got much the better of their Australian counterparts. The broad outlines of the deal, as you can imagine, is that uh, uh, you give us Tim Tams, we give you, we give you penguins, uh, uh, you give us Vegemite, we give you Marmite. For listeners who may have missed the subtext, the objective facts of the matter are that Tim Tams are excellent biscuits and penguins are really just not, and that Vegemite is God's own yeast extract sandwich spread and Marmite is garbage. And we learned a valuable lesson in the perils of engaging the general public in your much ballyhooed media startup. Here in the UK, GB News took to the airwaves to provide a broadcasting haven to that cohort of society who are simply not having pretty much everything that has happened since about 1971 and now live in fear of such altogether imaginary oppressors as cancel culture and wokeism. And we learned that, by golly, GB News wanted to hear from you. Instead, GB News heard from the coincidentally forenamed scions of the Hunt and Oxlong families. Mike Hunt has gone in touch about toys. I don't think kids need smoke. And Mike Oxlong has emailed me saying that he agrees with me. He says... But we also learned from one of GB News's beleaguered presenters that this sort of deeply puerile prankery just isn't funny. Uh, some people think it's really funny to send in uh, texts and messages that, on the basis that if we read them out, you know, we, we've been, we've been had. Uh, you're still doing it, and, and, and I'm watching them, and it, it doesn't help anybody. Counterpoint: It is funny. Tune in to GB News next week as the Freelies, Jablomies, Koholics and Huggin Kissers have their say. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks to Andrew. This is Monocle24 and I am Georgina Godwin in the studio with Charles Hecker on Monocle on Saturday. Have you watched GB News yet? No. Do you plan to? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we'll move on. One thing that um, one thing that uh, Andrew was talking about in that piece was uh, America and Biden and the high moral ground there. Um, and there's a really interesting piece in in the Washington Post, and this is about Catholic bishops and trying to stop him from taking the sacrament because of his belief in abortion. 
That's right. So here's the headline from the Washington Post, and the headline can barely capture the, the level of controversy that this story presents. But it says, Biden, deeply Catholic president, finds himself at odds with many U.S. bishops. And this is a story on today's website that spins off a story from yesterday, from Friday, where the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is essentially the governing body of the Catholic churches in the, in the United States, voted overwhelmingly to take a further step towards preventing pro-choice politicians from taking the Eucharist, from participating in communion. And this is a step towards politicizing one of the most sacred rituals in the Catholic Church at a time when the U.S. has only its second Catholic president, who himself is, is deeply devout and deeply believing, regularly attends church. Um, and, and you're right, Georgina positions himself as a moral and ethical leader rooted in his Catholicism and in his, and in his religion. Mm. And I also wonder what this means for, for instance, people who support the death penalty, because surely that must go against Catholic, uh, Catholic doctrine. Well, what it does is, and the, what the Post tells us in its coverage of, of, of this issue, is that it, it politicizes you know, the, one of the most sacred moments in the in the church and that there is no turning back from this. And once you do this, you're absolutely right. You move on to every other issue, whether it's um, support or um, fighting against the death penalty, whether it's your stance on alleviating poverty, whether it's your stance on human rights at home and in other countries, um, whether it's your stance on nuclear weapons. These are all positions that churches, by the way, of all stripe take positions on and that are already politicized. But this is a significant intensifying of the level of sort of church and state, which, by the way, is meant to be kept fairly separate mm -hmm. in the United States. <laughs> There's a, a great... Um quote in this piece. Uh, it comes from Massimo Faggioli, who is a, a theology professor, and he, he wrote a, a, a piece called Joe Biden and Catholicism in the United States. He says, if there are Catholic icons in this world and this country, they are Pope Francis and Joe Biden. That is seen by some bishops, he says, as a threat because their position is much more marginal now. You know, it's so interesting. I remember, so, you know, Joe Biden is the second Catholic president, and, and the first one, of course, was John F. Kennedy and that was its own watershed moment of him being the first Catholic president. And the interesting thing there was the concern, you know, justified or otherwise, in the U.S. electorate was that having a Catholic president would be something like having a pope in the White House, a president mm -hmm. who would do the pope's bidding and, and vote religiously. This time around, it's actually we've got opposition between the religion and its practitioner. Um, but you're right to, to bring Pope Francis into the argument, too, because he sparked an awful lot of fresh and intense debate on the church's position on social issues. And Biden is much more like him mm. than he is like the bishops. Yeah. And Francis, of course, has urged those bishops just to calm down. I mean, just he said, don't do anything hasty or <laughs> something like that. Um, listen, let us uh, go to Austria now because the country has resumed a direct daily train link to Trieste. It's former imperial seaport, resurrecting the oldest Alpine railway. All three countries along its way, that's Austria, Slovenia and Italy, celebrated the event with a great ceremony, hoping it will encourage business, tourism and culture in the region. Monocle's Alexei Koryalov in Vienna brings us this report. Ready? 
There were jubilant scenes as the first direct train from Vienna in more than 50 years arrived in Trieste a week ago. Such was the excitement, the welcoming party even contained a priest, rather to the bemusement of some of the passengers. Among them was Kurt Bauer, head of long-distance services at ÖBB, Austria's national rail company, who had travelled all the way from Vienna. There was a huge media event in Trieste. I mean, it is a touristical area as well. And for tourist areas, train connections are always important because it really changes the tourists as well because people who travel by train are normally also very attractive tourists in their personality. The journey, just shy of 600 kilometers, takes a good eight hours, about double the time it requires to make the trip by car. But Kurtbauer says it's worth it. To be quite honest, the travel times are not the fastest, so the road would be more competitive. However, it's definitely the nicest and picturesquest way to do that because you go via the Semmering, uh, the historic line, and then you go via Slovenia, which has beautiful spots uh, on the way, and then you're descending from Villa Opicina towards the sea and coast, and this line is simply perfect to see Europe in a nutshell. The connection, known in German as the Zutbahn, was inaugurated in 1857 during the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was the first rail link between Vienna and the empire's only seaport, providing a vital boost to trade and tourism. The service survived the collapse of the empire and two world wars and was still being operated in the 1960s. There are many Austrians alive today who remember the annual journeys on the Zutbahn to the seaside. Passengers came in the opposite direction too. In 1967, the Yugoslavian leader, Marshal Joseph Broz Tito, arrived in Vienna on the Zubahn. The Austrian radio was there to greet him. Yeah, I think uh, this historic connection was already an issue several years ago. Even the Bundespräsident, our Bundespräsident, mentioned in an interview in Trieste how important culturally this connection is. So we're very happy that this has been re-established now. Back to Kurt Bauer, the Austrian railways, for some final words. When you took that train, what was your emotion? What did you feel? Well, after the long way of negotiating with different parties, planning this train, it was really a, a relief to see uh, that the train now really runs. And it shows also that even so, sometimes you have to put a lot of effort into make things happen. At the end of the day, it's worth doing it and you really feel rewarded. It was amazing. We were sitting in the Slovenian dining car. We, were, we had breakfast. The, the sun was rising over the mountains. It couldn't get any better, could it? <laughs> for Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Many thanks to Alexei. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to our studio engineer, Steph Chungu. And Charles Hecker, what a pleasure to have you back in the studio. Nothing beats the live radio experience, especially with you, Georgina. Thank oh, you. Thank you. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle on Saturday returns next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>